Eileen's going to bring the reading to us now. Good morning. The reading this morning is from the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And may God add his blessing to that word. Thank you, Eileen. Now, John's going to come to read to us from our text this morning. Our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Thank you, John. So we come to Revelation chapter 3, the fifth church, I believe, as we're looking at the church of lost consciousness. Um, I was out to dinner last night and um, I was seated at the table with uh, a dear friend, uh, one of our friends, Kate and I's friends, and um, she handed me a gift 
um, a book and uh, the friend knows that you're a minister of the church. Can you imagine when you receive the book and you see the title of the book, The Better Pastor, just here? And, um, you know, it's like, oh, wow, thank you, Amanda. That's really kind of you. And um, it's a great book. I look forward to reading it. Patrick Leanchoni is a renowned uh, speaker, a top sort of speaker in the States, a committed Christian. Um, and, you know, a dear friend gives you a book, The Better Pastor. <laughs> the truth matters, doesn't it? And if someone cares for you, you want the truth, don't you? You want transparency. And you'll take what they say seriously. And the risen Lord spoke to the church truthfully at Sardis through the Apostle John. And let's hear what uh, he's got to say about uh, the church. Well, where, where is Sardis? So we can discover that Sardis was a major city in modern Western Turkey. It existed in the ancient kingdom of Lydia and was one of the most important cities of the Persian Empire before the Roman Empire. And it was under the proconsul of the Roman Empire. Sardis was situated in the middle of the Hermus Valley. It was at the foot of Mount Tumulus, a steep and lofty spur which you can see on the picture. It formed the citadel, the church, uh, and there was a synagogue. It was about two and a half miles south of Hermus. And you can still see, um, if you went there today, it's the village of Sart, S-A-R-T it's called, and there's still a bath and a gymnasium complex, and there's, there was a synagogue, and there are Byzantine shops as well. So what was Sardis renowned for? Well, it had incredible military strength. Its very geographical location on this escarpment gave it immense uh, strength and uh, opportunities. It was very difficult to penetrate that escarpment. And Sardis was a strategic location. You saw the map. It was on a, a main trade route from east to west near the Aegean coast. And the Valley of Hermas was fertile ground, so it was great for agricultural life. And they were incredibly wealthy, incredibly. So everything was hunky-dory as far as the Christians in Sardis were concerned, all very positive. And then John calls a word from the Lord in Revelation 3 verse 1. These are the words of him, John says, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And what he's saying is, he's talking about the risen Christ who holds the seven spirits, a holy number seven, and the seven stars. And he's talking about God's presence in the seven churches of Revelation. So the first thing that we think about is the signs of a lifeless church. And John says, inspired by the risen Christ, 
I know your deeds. I know your actions. You have a fabulous reputation for being alive. But I've got news for you, Sardis. You are dead. What does this mean for the Christians then at Sardis? Well, the good news is that the church of Sardis didn't need love. They were a very loving church. They knew what God's love was all about. They didn't need more biblical truth or Christian doctrine because they knew the tenets of the the Christian faith. They could recite a statement of faith very well. In fact, they understood holiness from unrighteousness. So you see, the church of Sardis was known as a happening church. And it's interesting how geography of a a place can shape a psychology of its inhabitants. Sardis was impregnable, if you think about that spur on the mountainside where the citadel was placed. It was impregnable. It was high up, and they were untouchable. Yet King Croas, who was king of Sardis, went to war against King Cyrus of Persia. And Croas was arrogant and overconfident because they had a command of the valleys and the rivers. It took King Cyrus 14 days of siege to win the city of Sardis and to fall to his kingdom. Many of us know we've grown up with a nursery rhyme, haven't we? Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. And of course, this comes from our own town of Colchester, Humpty Dumpty. And the legend goes that it's named after a canon of the royalists. And this was during the time of the English Civil War. In 1648, the siege of Colchester, the story goes, the royalist canon, nicknamed Humpty Dumpty, was shot off a wall by the parliamentary forces and there was a confidence because you know Colchester town is on a, on the top of a hill and you'll see the walls even now there is a certain protection if you go to the castle it looks down over the park and Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis and he's saying to the church of the 21st century Just because you have the light of Christ as a church, it doesn't mean you will always exist. If you become complacent, if you become self-serving, and what what John was saying of the church in Sardis is you're like a, a morgue, a mortuary. What an indictment. So what are the signs of a lifeless church? Well, a lifeless church has all the ceremony, but no form. Some of you know that I try to play golf. And one of my arguments for playing golf, uh, you hit this little white ball, and it's the mystery of life to me is how you can control that ball to go straight, or whether it goes left or right, too high, too low. And uh, one of my friends, uh, who I play golf with, um, dresses incredibly well. And those of you in the sporting world will know certain brands. Well, in the golf world, there is a brand called Galvin Green. 
It is incredibly expensive. You're very welcome to buy me any of their attire in the coming months. So he'll wear a polo shirt with Galvin Green, looks incredibly smart, Galvin Green trousers, he'll have a, right, a Galvin Green belt around him, he'll have a Callaway golf equipment, the irons, what are called the woods, He'll have a Callaway golf bag. It's pristine. He's on an electric trolley. He's got the um, Callaway golf shoes. Now, can he play golf? This is a good question. And um, what we do say to him, he's got all the gear and no idea. And that's what John is saying of the Church of Sardis. You've got all the outward show, but none of the inward know. It was all about image, but there was no substance. It's all about outward show and no inner know. No inner life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It was about what God did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And life hasn't moved on. There's no joy of the Lord despite our outward circumstances. All bling and no zing. Dr. William Barclay has said, a church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its past, when it is more concerned with forms than with life, when it loves systems more than it loves Jesus, when it's more concerned with material than it is with spiritual things. We know when God was calling a new king for Israel after Saul. He called David. A man looks at the outward appearance, said the prophet Samuel. But God looks at the inner life. God's interested in our inner life. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. A lifeless church has forgotten how to seek first the kingdom. That whilst biblical truths remain unchanging of the church's birth, uh, Christ's birth rather, ministry, death and resurrection, church is always changing, always moving on, always receiving different people, renewing, reforming, beckoning to the call of Christ to be a church of the 21st century. And the challenge for us is to beware of becoming fossilized. Now, can I share something that you are all eminently aware of and I'm trying to avoid? Uh, I'm getting older. Yeah, I know. It's terrible, isn't it? And I've been asking a genuine question of my older friends in and beyond this church. And I've come to see that it's a question that has dynamite attached to it unexpectedly. And it's a question that I'm going to ask my older friends, not you younger ones. How do we grow older full of grace and truth rather than become, becoming a grumbler or a grumbly? So I, I put to you, as I get older, if you've got some secrets on how I can avoid becoming a grumbly old man, do email me, do text me, 
do graciously share your thoughts with me about what the recipe is for growing older with courage, with faith, with love, with agility. And maybe we can persuade Pauline to do a Focus magazine article about what I learn from you guys and my other friends outside this church. The second thing we've thought about a lifeless church is the call to wake up. And I came across this, if you're at your desk, for those of you who are currently uh, caught at your desk where you're working, the five excuses when you're napping. Well, they told me at the blood bank this might happen. Then there's another one where you're caught sleeping at your desk. Phew, I must have left the top off the tipex. You probably got here just in time from the fumes. And then the third one, uh, this is probably Paul Clover, our church administrator. I wasn't sleeping. I was meditating on the vision of the church vision statement and envisioning a new paradigm for us. Or uh, the, the, the fourth one. I was just testing my keyboard for drool resistance. And finally, when someone wakes you up, you say, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Wake up is the beckoning call of the Apostle John to the church of Sardis. These excuses of falling asleep. The church at Sardis was not spiritually alive they were what we call nominal Christians. Nominal comes from the word name. Someone who has a name for something. You have a name to live, but you are not alive, says Jesus. You are dead. And this indicates a church that is made up of people who have outwardly professed Christ. Probably many of them thought themselves as believers, but who actually possess no spiritual life. They were Christians in name only. They had no distinctiveness. They didn't stand out, but melded into the wider community. An American writer and singer, Calvin Miller from Nebraska, wrote a poem, The Singer. He says, many Christians are really Christoholics and not disciples at all. Disciples are cross-bearers. They seek Christ. Christaholics seek happiness. Disciples dare to discipline themselves, and the demands they place on themselves leave them enjoying the happiness of their growth. Christaholics are escapists, looking for a shortcut to nirvana, like drug addicts. They are trying to bomb out of their depressing world. Quite a challenging poem, the singer. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy about certain Christians who have a form of godliness, but denying its power. And so John says, wake up, be conscious. We wake up to be conscious of the signs of our times. We live in a society that just doesn't like absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And our society prefers tolerance and relative truth, and when they don't like the truth we have, they become incredibly intolerant. But these are the impatient times. C.S. Lewis says, take seriously the claims of Christ. You can't say he's a wise man when Jesus says of himself, the Father has sent me and the Father and I are one. You can't say Jesus was a good man if you don't believe what he says because he's a liar. He's either God's son or he's not. You can't have it both ways. It's true or he's an imposter. And the other signs of our times, beware the corrosive rust of wasting time that eats away at our faith, where even perhaps our traditions can hamper our mission to Colchester in the world. I remember back in the times when Rhodesia became Zimbabwe and the people of that great land used to look back and think back to times past, and they were called Wenwees, when we, and they were always looking back. And it's nostalgic and can be good to reflect, it's fine, but it mustn't determine our future. So we need to beware of losing time. Another form of uh, falling asleep, beware the forces of evil that lurk to seduce our loyalty to Christ and his church. Where it's okay to miss church regularly, it's okay to stay at home, beware the temptation to retreat and get irritated about the little things, about what music is played, thinking about what text or Bible version we read. Beware about these issues when there are major issues going on in our world. Some of you know that I had a decade plus fighting against modern day slavery. There are 40 million people in slavery this very day, men, women, and children. Tonight, thousands will go without food, where security and safety is far from the dream for school children. Tomorrow, school children will walk from home to school in parts of the developing world, and they will be at risk of assault and violence. And sometimes we get caught up in things that are minuscule when God is calling us to major on the major and not the minuscule. How do we turn Sardis around? Well, we need to keep remembering who we're here for, and why we're here. Because the Lord Jesus, because of the cross, the price he paid for our sin, because he is the hope of the world, we need to recover the thrill of the gospel. And the pandemic has thrown us outside our comfort zone, that we have to sit here wearing masks, and how we are anxious about sometimes being together, It's a tough place for us to be, but we need to recover and concentrate on the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to cut out the white noise that distracts us from spending time with Jesus. And Jesus says to the church of Sardis, to the faithful, Jesus promises joy. 
He promises white garments of raiment beauty. It's a sign of those who are faithful and redeemed. So in our conclusions, what happened at the church in Sardis? Was it revived? Did they heed Christ's rebuke and warning? Well, the fact that the godly apologist um, Melito served as the minister of this church several decades after the Apostle John recorded this letter, there is argument that revival did take place. Dead and dying churches are still with us today, but they can be revived by following the command of the Lord, and that is by examining our hearts that are, am I alive spiritually? Am I in a desert place and dry? Am I asleep spiritually, sleepwalking into nothingness? Is my faith producing works of righteousness, fruit? And Jesus says to me and to you, wake up, be watchful, fan those embers of the faith back to flame. And here's a thing, repent. Repent and recover the first innocence of faith. Walk in faith. Walk in the promises of Jesus. Walk in the joy and hold on to him and just don't let go. In Eugene Peterson's excellent book, Run With Horses, he tells the story of his frustration trying to remove the blade from his lawnmower, under his lawnmower. He tried everything and finally his neighbour uh, came over and asked, if it, and he said, look, can you help me? And he says, you know what you're doing? You're tightening the bolt the wrong way. That's why you can't get your blade off. And that's a great analogy sometimes for life. We think we need to keep pushing harder and harder in one direction, when all we need to do is go in a different direction. It's a great metaphor for repentance. To be told we are wrong is sometimes an embarrassment. Be a better pastor. Be a better church. We want to run and hide our heads in shame, but there are times when finding out we are wrong is a sudden and immediate relief. We can lift our heads in hope. No longer do we have to keep doggedly trying to do something that isn't working. And so he tried to get the blade off, to sharpen it. And he had the biggest wrench attached to the nut and it just wouldn't budge. I got four foot length of pipe and slipped it over the wrench handle to give me leverage. I leaned on that, still unsuccessfully. Next, I took a rock to move and banged on the pipe. By this time, I was beginning to get emotionally involved with my lawnmower, says Eugene Peterson. And then my neighbor came and reversed my exertions. Sure enough, the nut turned easily. I was glad to find out I was wrong. I was safe from my frustration and failure. I would never have gotten the job done, no matter how hard I tried doing it my way. Jesus is calling his church to repent and do it his way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our King and our God. You're Lord of this church. You're Lord of the churches across the globe. And we pray that we would wake up if we are asleep. 
We pray, God, you give us a fresh vision as we come through this pandemic, through a sense of disorientation. We thank you that you are the A of life. And A is never changing in the alphabet. You are the alpha. And Lord, we make you our alpha. We want you to be king of our lives and we want our lives to matter. We want truth and goodness and kindness and courage and faith to flow from our lives, not to bring grandeur to self, but glory to you, God. And so we pray you have all the permission you want, Lord, to shape us and make us in this church, to make us to be what you call us to be. Help us to relax. Help us to turn the nut a different way, to find your way. For we want this place to continue to glorify you. We don't want to be accused of being a dead church, a lifeless church. We so hunger to want more of you. Hunger for the people of Colchester to discover you. So Lord, walk with us, we pray. Give us graciousness. Give us your vision. In Jesus' name. Amen.